Well, there is a study guide in your bulletin that you can pull out and follow along with us this morning. And, and my goal today, as I mentioned in the prayer, is to equip you in the Word of God so that you can be more discerning about the messages that you hear from uh, TV preachers or on podcasts, more discerning about the articles you read, magazine articles, books, specifically with reference to the gospel. And so I've titled the message False Gospels today. You know, we talk a lot about pursuing God around here and how critical that is for us as followers of Jesus to pursue God. It's part of a, it's a, a catalyst for our transformation. And I think that a huge part of pursuing God is pursuing a correct understanding of God's central message to humanity, what the Bible calls the gospel. And that has to include knowing what the gospel is and knowing what it is not. For the past five weekends, we've been looking deeply into what the gospel is, and we've attempted to define the gospel biblically. We've looked at the gospel as a a beautiful diamond, many-faceted, stunning in its beauty, marvelous. We thank God for the gospel. And so with that knowledge under our belts, today I want us to look at what the gospel is not. And I promise to be careful. And I'll do my best to rightly divide the word of truth. As I talk, some of you may become upset and feel like I'm attacking a particular preacher or ministry or author that you like. And I want you to know I'm I'm not in attack mode today, okay? But what I would ask of you is to suspend judgment for a few moments and just listen to what the Word of God has to say. We've got to get the gospel right. So much is at stake. The Apostle Paul apparently had very strong feelings about the importance of getting the gospel message right. Check this out. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Here's what he wrote. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You might want to circle that little phrase, different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, you might want to circle that word, confusion, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. There's another word to circle, pervert. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That's the Greek word anathema. You heard that word? Eternally condemned is probably too soft. Let him be damned. Verse 9, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. Notice several things. It can be astonishing how quickly and easily some people are swayed into believing a false gospel. That's what he's saying. I'm astonished. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that you could so quickly turn away from the true gospel and embrace another one. Second, he says there are people out there who are confusing people by perverting. The word literally means to twist to distort, to alter, to corrupt the gospel. There are people out there who are doing that. They're confusing you by perverting the gospel, he says. 
Third, I notice that this gets Paul's blood boiling. It ticks him off. He starts searching for some vocabulary to explain, you know, some high-octane words to explain how upset he is that people are perverting the true gospel of Christ. Fourth thing I notice is that he was so convinced of the truth of his initial, original proclamation of the gospel to these folks that he says this, look, if someone else shows up and preaches a different gospel, he says, if I show up and preach a different gospel, if an angel shows up and preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be eternally condemned. Let him be damned to hell. Strong, strong language here. And then the last thing I notice is that he's so serious about this, he repeats it twice for emphasis. Verse 9, as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be anathema. You see all that? So messing with the gospel is serious business. Of course it is. Because the gospel contains the only way for sinful mankind to be made right with a holy and righteous God. Mess that up and people could end up remaining under the holy wrath of God and miss salvation, according to John 3.36. Well, I'm convinced that just like in Paul's day, right now in our day, the gospel, the true gospel of Christ is being twisted, distorted, corrupted. People are trying to add impurities to the beautiful gospel diamond of Jesus Christ, flaws. There are popular pastors and speakers and authors who are watering it down or adding stuff to it or trying to change the focus of it or trying to make it hip and cool and culturally relevant, trying to take the edge off of it so that it'll seem more palatable to people. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. The Bible predicted it. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Sounds like the world of podcasting. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. The time will come, he says, and I think we're in that time. I think we're in that time. So here's the question. How can you tell? How can you know if some guy on the TV that you're watching or on YouTube or whatever is preaching the true gospel or some pseudo-gospel? You know, false teachers don't typically wear a badge self-identifying. Hello, I'm a false teacher preaching a false gospel. More often, they are smartly dressed, smooth-talking, likable types who quote the Bible a lot and seem sincere. So how do you know? For that matter, how do you know that I'm preaching the true, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I believe that in this day and age especially, we must become equipped with the knowledge of the Word of God to avoid being duped by smooth talkers who are distorting God's gospel and thereby leading people to hell. And so towards that end today, I want to give you four marks, okay? Four marks of a false gospel. 
If you hear any teaching or read a book or a magazine article or whatever that contains any of these four things, know for sure in your heart you have encountered a false gospel. And then after that, I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit, okay? And I'm going to give you what I believe are some other distorted gospels that I think are off the mark and undermine the true gospel. So I hope you're ready for all that, okay? But we'll start with four marks of a false gospel. Number one, if you hear a preacher, pastor, read a book, a blog online or whatever, and they deny any of the historical gospel events, no, that's a false gospel. If they deny any of the historical gospel events, you say, what are the historical gospel events? Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose from the grave, Christ appeared to many people. Say, where do you get that? 1 Corinthians 15.3. Paul wrote this, I received what I passed on to you as of first importance. He's talking about the gospel in this context. That Christ, read this out loud with me, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. If you hear someone declare or even imply that these gospel events didn't happen, or that it doesn't matter whether or not they happened, know that you're encountering a false gospel. Paul asserts that the gospel, the true gospel, is historical based on events that really happened in human history, in time, and in space. Now, back in the 60s, it became popular in seminaries, at least, and in the culture, to kind of have this notion about the gospel events. Well, whether or not Jesus really died on the cross and really rose from the dead, that doesn't really matter. Don't get all bent out of shape about, you know, historical stuff. Just what really matters is that he's risen in your heart. Okay? And, and there was a lot of talk about the resurrection of hope. And, and, and this is the old theological liberalism that sounds scarily similar to the new postmodernism, which says, you know, it doesn't really matter whether or not you know, these things really happened in history. What matters is that hope has risen in your hearts. Now, it mattered to Paul. The historical gospel mattered to Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It matters. The historical context of the gospel matters. Did you know that Islam teaches that Jesus Christ did not really die on the cross? Teaches that he was somehow whisked away before he died. Anytime you encounter any teaching that denies any of the historical events of the gospel, you're hearing a false gospel. Just know that. We need to understand that our Christian faith is grounded in history. It is verifiable. People saw it. It happened. There were eyewitnesses. And they recorded it. So that's a mark of a false gospel. Denying the, what scholars would call the historicity of the gospel events. Second, Anytime you hear a teaching that detracts 
from Christ by leaving room for human boasting in salvation, you're encountering a false gospel. I call these the gospels of shared credit. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. That's all cool. Jesus gets a lot of credit for your salvation, but you get some too because you did something that merited God's favor as well. This is the Jesus plus gospel. Familiar with this? Jesus is good, but you need to add something to what Jesus did if you want to be right with God, if you want to be saved. You need to add something. Baptism, you need to add the sacraments, you need to add church membership, you need to add good works. You need to add something to what Jesus did on the cross to make you right with, right with God. That's called the Jesus plus gospel. And it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. You see, when you add something to the cross, then you get to take some of the credit for your salvation. That leaves room for some human boasting. But the Bible is very clear about human boasting. We said this verse last week. If you've memorized it or know it, say it out loud with me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The true gospel is not a shared credit gospel. The gospel was designed by God so that Jesus Christ gets all the glory for your salvation and for mine. All the glory. In Romans 3.27, Paul said, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There's no boasting. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the Lord. Let's be clear. Any so-called gospel that says you can do something to merit God's favor is a false gospel. Third, anytime you hear a, a, a teacher or a preacher or read a book that diminishes Jesus Christ, that takes Jesus down a level, diminishing the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, Savior, God, is a mark of a false gospel. I mean, all the cults do this. All the false religions do this. They want to take Jesus down a notch. If you hear someone declare that Jesus is somehow less than God, or that he had a beginning, or that he has an end, or that he sinned, or that he was simply a good teacher, or a prophet, or one of many prophets, just know that you're looking at a false gospel. False gospels want to bring Jesus down a notch, diminish him, reduce him somehow. Whether we're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Islam, these teachings all want to reduce Jesus. But John wrote this, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Peter wrote this, 2 Peter 2.1. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Yes, he was right. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, denying the sovereignty of Jesus, bringing swift destruction on themselves. 
False teachers diminish the identity of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God the Father's estimation of God the Son, the greatest passage, I think, in the whole Bible is Philippians 2, 8 through 11. It's talking about Jesus. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he looked human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the, what does it say? The highest place, like above everybody else, and gave him the name that is above every name, Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. It says things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, that's demons. As we've said, Satan one day is going to bow his knee. Say, Jesus, you are Lord. You're the Lord. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's God's estimate of the Son. And any teaching that that seeks to reduce Jesus or bring him down to our level or make him more human or say that he sinned or that he didn't always exist or that he, he won't always, all of that smacks of a false gospel. Know that. We need to know that. We need to have our antenna up when we're listening to people talking about these things. A fourth mark. I encountered this one um, with one of our church members just this week. If you hear someone declare that everybody will ultimately be saved because of the love of God, you know you're encountering a false gospel. These are the universalists. These are the ones who say, yeah, Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody's sins, so everybody will be saved. Everybody's going to be in heaven. One of them, one of their adherents is quoted as saying, how wide is the mercy of God, as wide as the universe, and no one will be lost at the end. Now, let's be honest. This is certainly appealing to the human mind, isn't it? But it has no basis in Scripture. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, talking about heaven, the new Jerusalem. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If everybody was going to be in heaven, why did he say, no, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life? Revelation 20:15 If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire it's very sobering Some people say well yeah there will be some people who go to hell but then God will burn all the hell out of them and then they'll go to heaven 2 Thessalonians 1:9 They will be punished with everlasting destruction You've got to look at the verbiage. You've got to look at the vocabulary when the lake of fire is described. It's everlasting, everlasting, forever. Shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the majesty of his power. It's sobering, isn't it? I don't know what the universalists do with the words of Jesus when he said, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. <laughs> only a few. There's a broad road, he said. There's a narrow road. Most folks are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Only a few enter through the narrow gate and travel on the narrow road. You've heard of Charles Spurgeon, 
great preacher from the 1800s, he said this, Avoid a sugar-coated gospel. Seek the gospel which rips up and tears and cuts and wounds and hacks and even kills, for that is the gospel that makes alive again. And when you have found it, give good heed to it. Let it enter into your inmost being as rain soaks into the ground. Pray the Lord to let his gospel soak into your soul. The true gospel. So if you hear a teaching that smacks of any of these four things I just mentioned, you can be sure that you're hearing a false gospel. Now, I will say this, that, that by and large, you won't hear these false gospels within the realm of evangelical Christianity. You mostly hear these outside of our camp, outside of our circles. So now I'm going to go out on a limb and talk about what I believe to be some gospel errors that are found within our camp of evangelical Christianity. I know I need to handle this very carefully. I consider myself an evangelical, and I've always been a lover of the whole body of Christ. I'm not a believer that everybody has to be exactly the same. But when it comes to this gospel, I've become convinced that some within our ranks are guilty of distorting the gospel, of introducing impurities into the gospel diamond. I'm hesitant to call these false gospels. I would call them distortions or alterings or underminings or dilutions of the one true gospel. You know, can you believe these and still be truly saved and go to heaven? I hope so. (laughs) For the sake of many, I hope so, but I'm not sure. I don't know for sure. So, I'd like to make you aware of what I believe to be some gospel distortions within our circles. Number one, the minimalist or fire escape gospel. The fire escape gospel. Just say this little prayer... And you will escape hell and be assured of heaven. This approach, the minimalist gospel, the minimalist gospel, reduces the gospel to a simple little formula that can be recited as a get-out-of-hell-free card. And I'll be the first to say, in my life, I've been guilty of sharing the gospel like this with people. And I know why we do it. I know why evangelicals do it. We want the gospel to be simple, don't we? We want it to be understandable. We want, to be able, we want children to be able to understand the gospel. And so in seeking to simplify it, I think we do some injustice to it. I think it's possible in this minimalist gospel to leave out things like repentance, to leave out things like the costliness, of the price that Jesus paid on that cross for our sins. I think it's possible to imply that, that this little formula, that if you say it, I think it's possible to imply that a prayer will save you. And you say, well, you're splitting hairs here. Well, I probably am, but I, I think we need to be clear that prayer does not save, Jesus saves. What must I do to be saved? The jailer asked. What did, what did Paul re- reply? Pray a prayer? No, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, we know that that faith and repentance are often expressed through prayers. I understand that. 
I think we need to be clear that it's not a prayer that saves you. It is Jesus that saves you. Am I making any sense? Okay. I think it's important that we understand that because when we communicate that, you know, the prayer saves you, then people are always thinking, well, I wonder if I said the right words. I wonder if I said the formula right. I wonder if I really meant it. And that's not the issue. The issue is what are you relying on to make you right with God? I love the way Peter summed it up. Listen, 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's that costliness of the sacrifice, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of the world, revealed in these last times for your sake, Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope for your salvation, for your redemption, he says, need to be in God. So, I think it's a a distortion to present the gospel like that. Second, I'll call this the truncated gospel. Truncated, kind of shortened, cut off. The truncated gospel emphasizes the gifts of salvation to us over and above the ultimate gift of salvation, which is God himself. Isaiah 40, verse 9 says, Behold the good news, behold your God. And I think it's easy to do what D.A. Carson has said, which is to place in the background that which should be in the foreground and to place in the foreground that which should be in the background. In the foreground of the gospel should be the ultimate best, highest gift of the gospel, which is God himself. That he makes himself, he offers himself to people. And the gifts of the gospel, especially the eternal heavenly gifts like mansions, in glory and streets of gold and reunion with our loved ones, as wonderful as those things are, those are in the background because the best gift of the gospel is God himself. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think the truncated gospel is a distortion of the true gospel. The best gift of the gospel is God, not just his gifts. By the way, his gifts were meant to point us to him, the giver, not to worship the gifts. Third, a third distortion or undermining of the gospel, I believe, is the life improvement gospel. This is running rampant in our country, and now we're exporting it to the world. The life improvement gospel says this, Jesus is a stepping stone to a better life. You've heard it. Hey, want a better life? Want more joy? More peace? More happiness? Fewer problems, better sex, pain-free life. You've tried the rest, now try the best. Check out Jesus. It's the life improvement gospel. It's very appealing, especially to consumers. I think part of its insidiousness is that it has truth in it. Jesus will make your life better. Won't he? In his definition of better, 
But it makes me sick when I meet people who are disillusioned with Jesus because they feel gypped. Like, Jesus didn't come through for me. I, I was promised an easier life, a better life, a more pleasant life. Jesus didn't come through for me, so now I'm going to try Botox. Now I'm going to try beer. Now I'm going to try Cialis. I'm going to try something else to make my life better because Jesus didn't cut it for me. I think that would have enraged Paul. I think it enrages Jesus. Makes Jesus a stepping stone. Makes Jesus a means to an end. John Piper says, The goal of the gospel, according to 1 Peter 3.18, is God. God isn't a stepping stone to a reward. He is the reward. Don't step on him to get to other things. He is the end, not the means to an end. He says, without this understanding, people will never break free of their idols, but just feel better about them. You see, the true gospel teaches us, for example, that suffering has a purpose in this life. That pain... And suffering are actually God's tools in forming us in the image of Christ. That's why Paul could say in Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. That's why Paul would tell a young pastor, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pain-free or problem-free. In some ways, when you invite Jesus into your life, it's going to make your life harder. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do not be fooled. Jesus did not die on the cross primarily so that you could live your best life now. He died on the cross primarily to remove the barrier of your rebellion and God's wrath so that you could delight and enjoy in your creator forever. That's the end of the gospel, the end game. So I think the life improvement gospel is a distortion of the true gospel, as is its cousin, number four, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Jesus died on that cross so that you could become healthy and rich. The health and wealth gospel. Again, you've heard it. Claim these promises. Stand on the word. Use positive confession. And then God is obligated to heal you or to send money flying into your bank account. You're one of the king's kids and you should live lavishly like a king's kid would. So claim your inheritance and on and on. Some of these guys make it sound like the result of salvation is that God becomes your servant. You can start ordering God around to make you healthy and wealthy. All I can say about those guys is that they must be far more spiritual than Paul. Because here's what Paul wrote in Philippians 4.12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He warned Timothy of guys like this. He said, they're men of corrupt mind, 1 Timothy 6.5, men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's it. But godliness, he writes, with contentment 
is great gain. True riches. That's a message you will not hear from the popular prosperity preachers. Contentment is wealth. Now maybe you're thinking, but but those guys have big fancy churches and they smile a lot and they seem happy and lots and lots of people go there and they quote from the Bible. You know what my response would be? So what? So what? You you can't, you'd be hard-pressed to find in the Bible that having nice buildings or having lots of adoring fans is a sign of God's blessing. In fact, some of God's most blessed servants had very few adoring fans and no nice buildings, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Noah and John the Baptist and others. Say, well, they quote the Bible a lot. Satan quotes the Bible. All kinds of authors and preachers take jerk things out of context from the Bible and use it for their own ends. Those things are extraneous. What matters is the content and foundation of their message, the fruit of their lives, and are they rightly dividing the word of truth? 2 Timothy 2.15 I believe the prosperity gospel is just another man-centered gospel that diminishes God's glory by deflecting attention away from God and onto man. It elevates man's pleasure and ease over God's glory and appeals to the natural man. And think about this. You don't even have to be convicted of your sin to want an easier life or health or wealth. There's no spiritual appeal there. But the true gospel is different. I agree with Oswald Chambers who wrote this. There is nothing attractive about the true gospel to the natural man. The only man who finds the true gospel attractive is the man who is convicted of his sin. There's a difference. Here's another gospel distortion. Call it the license to sin gospel. The license to sin gospel misuses the grace of God. And I love the grace of God, don't you? But this gospel declares that, you know, someone who adheres to this would say, you know, Christianity is so cool. I love Christianity because you can believe the gospel and then continue to live your life in deliberate sin and God's grace will cover you. It's awesome. What shall we say then? Romans 6.1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 1 John 3, 9. No one, listen, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And the idea is to deliberately, as a lifestyle, intentionally continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. Indeed, he cannot go on sinning. Because if you're a true believer, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. I believe that God will take you out if you're a true believer, take you off the planet before allowing his son's name to be drugged through the mud over and over by the habitual sinning lifestyle of someone who claims to be a Christian. God's grace is not something to be taken advantage of. Jude 4. There's only one chapter in Jude, so it's Jude 4. 
For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They've infiltrated your ranks. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. That's it. Hey, we can do anything. We can party our lives away and still consider ourselves Christians because of the wonderful grace of God. They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Any gospel, any gospel that views grace in this way is missing it completely. And then the last one I'll mention, I'll call the great commandment gospel. And I need you to stay with me on this one. I'll take just a moment or two. This one's pretty popular today. I think it's a distortion. It's a, it confuses the gospel with the implications of the gospel for those who believe it. The great commandment gospel says, we're the good news. Christians are the good news as they go out into all the world and show compassion and selflessly serve mankind. That is the gospel, according to these folks. I beg to differ. I think the gospel is what it is. The gospel is not everything that every good thing that Christians do in the world. Now, we should be doing good things in the world. We had a serve fest yesterday, a church-wide event where we just spread out into our community and serve people in the name of Jesus. We should do that as those who have embraced the gospel. But I think the good deeds of Christians and the gospel message that brings salvation need to be distinguished. You say you're splitting hairs here. Well, maybe so, but I can't save anybody from their sins. Neither can you on your best day. You can't save anybody from their sins. Neither can I. We need to be really clear that only Jesus Christ on that cross can do that. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection and appearances of Jesus Christ all for our sins. That is the gospel message. People who believe that do good things in the world, but all the good things that we do in the world are not equivalent to the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference between the gospel and the implications of the gospel. To the extent that we point people to the good news, then we are the good news. To the extent we point them to the good news. So, I believe in this day and age we must make every effort under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in submission and submission to the Word of God to get the gospel right. It's easy to join the very convincing crowd of folks who are distorting the gospel, making it more than it was intended to be or less than it was intended to be. My prayer today is that we, this body of believers here at New Life, would embrace the true gospel anew and afresh with humble hearts, grateful hearts, repentant hearts, marveling at the beauty of God's beautiful diamond plan for reconciling mankind unto himself. You know, back in the first century, the the, the original believers in Jesus got so concerned that the the integrity of the gospel message be preserved that they, they put it into a creed, the form of a creed. They articulated the gospel as a gospel creed, and that creed would be recited and repeated in gatherings of believers all over that region based on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Paul makes reference to it in 1 Corinthians 15, and 
I want us to repeat aloud together in just a few moments the gospel creed before we partake together of the Lord's table this morning. He introduces the gospel creed by saying this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, you know, don't go running after another gospel. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Now, here's the creed. Listen to his language here. For, I received, for what I received, I passed on to you. Paul's saying, I received something, and now I'm passing it on to you. It's of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. That's a gospel creed that dates back probably to 50 A.D. Now let's stand together, and I want us to say this creed aloud one more time. As Christians, believers in Jesus have done for nearly two millennia, 2,000 years. Let's repeat aloud the gospel creed. Beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. That is our confession of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this, and I'll close with this. On Christ and what he has done, my soul hangs for time and eternity. And if your soul also hangs there, it will be saved as surely as mine shall be. And if you are lost, trusting in Christ, I will be lost with you and will go to hell with you. I must do so, for I have nothing else to rely on but the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, was buried, rose again, appeared, went to heaven, and still lives and pleads for sinners at the right hand of God. Will you bow your heads? As we've been doing a lot lately, in just a few moments, we're going to partake of the Lord's table, communion together. And this weekend, it's going to be served to you by several members on our ministry leadership team who love you and want to serve you. But as you stand, I want to read another creed, early creed to you. This is the communion creed from 1 Corinthians 11. It's been a long time since we've read this, so let me read it to you to prepare us for communion. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul adds this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself, it says. 
man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick. A number of you have fallen asleep. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So with your heads bowed and eyes closed, would you ask the Lord right now through his Holy Spirit to shine his searchlight on your heart and to reveal, to expose anything in your heart that is not pleasing to your master, your king, Jesus. Sin, error, wrongdoing, unforgiveness, bitterness, pride, lust. Whatever the Spirit of God reveals and brings to the surface, I implore you to confess it to the Father, to repent of it, and plead the blood of Jesus, your Savior, over that sin for cleansing purposes, to cleanse your heart. And when your heart is clean and clear before him, feel free to step out, come to one of our ministry team members and partake of the elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ.